With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And today is a very special bonus episode. Today, February 23rd, 2021, marks the one-year podcasting anniversary for Kinsey and I and Crimeaholics. We never expected to do more than 10 episodes and have more than 10 friends listen to those episodes, and we figured that we would quit. But here we are 365 days later with who knows how many episodes we've done And you guys keep coming back for more, so thank you. We wanted to celebrate this moment by bringing you guys a really special interview with one of our dear friends that we've met on this podcasting journey named Jason Schechterly. Jason's story is truly so inspiring, and I cannot wait to share it with you guys because he is an incredible person and I am so thankful that we have been able to get to know him these last several months. Without further ado, let's dive into today's bonus Crimeaholics one-year birthday celebration episode. First of all, I want to start off by saying a major thank you to Jason for doing this awesome interview with us. Because our interview is done remotely, some of the audio isn't as good of quality as what we usually have, but the story and the message is still so profound. So let's get into it. All right. Hey, everybody. My name is Jason Schechterly. I am from Phoenix, Arizona, and growing up here... Uh, just incredible childhood. Thought about being a cop all the way back to high school. Seemed like a, a good job, but what do you know in high school, right? So uh, I ended up uh, going to college on a golf scholarship. And then only six months into my freshman year, I was like, you know what? I really need some structure, some discipline. I wanted to change courses in life. Uh, all of my family uh, had been in the military. So I joined the Air Force and the Air Force, uh, as you can somewhat relate to, they have a very good sense of humor. And they realized when they saw on paper that I was from Phoenix, they thought it'd be a good idea to send me to Grand Forks, North Dakota. So I froze my butt off for a couple of years, uh, went to Korea, went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for the 1994 H-Refugee crisis, did my four years, came home and... Yeah, I just wasn't mature enough or ready to be a cop. So life can change on you pretty quickly. Uh, got married, had a couple of kids. Ended up with a really good job. Uh, got an apprenticeship to be a lineman. Uh, the guys who work on the overhead and underground power lines. And I just can't say enough about this job. Outside every day, different locations, making a good salary. On March 26th of 1999, 
I came home from work, turned on the five o'clock news, and the lead story was eight police officer named Mark Atkinson had just been shot and killed in the line of duty. And it was a real moment of clarity. It was my aha moment. Like, you do need to be around that uniform doing that job. So on the very next day, filled out an application with the city of Phoenix. It took about three months to get through the ruling hiring process. But I was lucky enough to be hired and given the opportunity, started the academy in September of 1999. It was the first graduating class of 2000. And hit the streets, just as excited as possible to be a cop on the streets of the city that I grew up in, work on the night shift. I just loved every aspect of this job. I mean, it was not, when you do this job with the right honor and integrity behind the badge, it is without a doubt the most rewarding career there is. I uh, did my year on probation successfully, and then my best friend and I at the academy, he's an officer named Brian Chapman, and he'd been a cop in Ohio for a while, came out to Phoenix, we just happened to meet. You know, life's all about timing and choices and all this stuff. And he was my best friend one to work together. And so we transferred to a different squad, better hours, better days off. And I just can't begin to tell you how perfect life was at the time. I was 28 years old, a growing family, you know, wife, two kids, job that I'm meant to be doing. All four of my grandparents are alive and married. All my parents were healthy and happily married. I mean, just life was too good. And that can sometimes be a problem because adversity is coming and it's, it's going to come get us. We're all going to be affected by something like death and family, divorce, things like that. But each one of us, if we're lucky enough, is going to face something that's unique to us that, that completely changes our lives, life's path or what we envision it, which, you know, I've learned at my age is not the smartest way to go about things is making big plans for the future because it's going to change. But anyway, on March 26th of 2001, ironically, two years to the day after Mark Axel was killed, and it was on his anniversary, it's just unbelievable. Went to work that day at three in the afternoon, I was supposed to work until one o'clock in the morning, and we were short staffed, so my partner and I had to separate. And I actually left our precinct, I drove over to where. Mark Axon had been killed. His beautiful memorial marker there. I made the sign of the cross. I thanked him for his sacrifice, the opportunity he had given me. Having no idea that in about eight hours, I was going to come very close to meeting the same memorial marker that he had. Went through, you know, a very quiet, routine day. Uh, that's about the dumbest thing cops can say. We say it all the time because it's, it's true. There's a lot going on. But about 11.30 p.m. that night, there was an emergency call of an unknown trouble. And it wasn't in my area of responsibility, but the officer were busy at the time. So when the dispatcher came back on, again, emergency call, I was doing things when I grabbed the radio and I said, I'll head that direction. Had a long ways to travel. Uh, it was out of my patrol zone. So lights and siren, gonna get there as quick as I can. And I approached a traffic light that it, it's in a very busy part of Phoenix, about five minutes east of downtown. Phoenix Children's Hospital, Arizona Heart Institute. It's a, uh, one of our freeways. The overpass was right there. Uh, so pretty busy intersection, but 11.30 p.m., relatively quiet. And I had a red light, so I came to a brief stop. It only takes a second and a half to clear the intersection. And just as I was going to proceed, my patrol car was struck from behind by a taxi cab. The guy was having an epileptic seizure 
And according to the investigation, he was doing 115 miles an hour in your interview, which you know, that's a speed I can't even fathom. It's a 40 mile an hour downtown city street. Uh, I never saw the car coming, never felt the impact. I have no memory of the collision, but I was fortunate enough in time to listen to the police and fire dispatch tapes, personally interview everybody on scene and really put together the sequence of events that took place after the impact. And just so many miracles. Uh, I mean, my car burst into flames. I was knocked unconscious, trapped inside. And I traveled 270 feet through the intersection and came to stop about 50 feet from a fire truck. I can't even begin to tell you the, the timing and miracles that went into putting a fire truck exact intersection, the exact moment that I needed the most. And I often think, you know, people, people take things for granted sometimes when it comes to our emotions and our mental abilities, fight or flight syndrome, things like that. And it's easy to just say the facts or go along the timeline. But I often think about these firefighters, you know, as a first responder, you're on your way to a call, you have some details, you know, a little something like as a cop, a uh, man with a gun, shoplifter, trespasser, armed robber, you have a little bit of details of where you're going and you can have a, a couple seconds to, to think about how you're going to approach something. It was the same for this fire crew that night. They were on their way to a call and they pulled up at this intersection and the world literally explodes right in front of them. Again, I don't care who you are, what uniform you wear, fight or flight syndrome is just, it's just real. And what they must have thought and gone through in those brief few seconds, and then they realize it's a cop car. Cops and firefighters have a fun way of, you know, giving each other crap and teasing. But when it comes right down to it, we have each other's backs and they were faced with a pretty daunting task. Car completely engulfed in flames, a police car, and then they see that there's a person sitting in the driver's seat, unconscious. Just unbelievable the work they were able to do. They got me out of the car in about 90 seconds uh, into the back of an ambulance. And another miracle, I was two and a half miles away from arguably the best burn center in the United States at Maricopa County Hospital. And I was on their trauma table less than eight minutes. I mean, but for the collision, every single thing was going in my favor. I had suffered burns to 43% of my body, my neck, head, and face were the worst. They were fourth degree, which is a term I'd never heard. I thought third degree was the worst, but fourth degree means it's down the last layers of muscle into the bone. Uh, my shoulders, my hands, and the tops of my thighs, my chest, my stomach, my back, thankfully don't have a bark on them because of my bulletproof vest. And that really did a lot in saving my life because burns, it's a unique injury and, and they they will keep on burning. So you, you find somebody with a bad chest burn, they usually end up, uh, their lungs can't expand, they become restricted, and they suffocate, you die pretty quick. So I was very lucky in that regard. Uh, the doctor still gathered my family around and said, look, I, I've never seen burns like this, so I had to face. Jason is not going to survive. But I have to get him into surgery, I have to get all of that dead bacteria filled tissue off of them. And they put me into a medically induced coma just knowing the surgeries and pain I was facing. If I was to survive for a couple of days, they just wanted to keep me quiet and pain-free. And that started the process. It was nonstop surgery, along with them being surprised that I'm still alive. Uh, days are clicking by and I'll continue to survive. And finally, the doctors decided to wake me up and they were still full of some pretty grim news for my family. You know, I'm, 
I was completely blind. They thought I might be deaf. If I could hear, if I could speak, I was not going to be able to handle what I'm being told. Uh, no good. And so they weaned me out the medicine. And I woke up. I still remember as clear-headed as I am right now. Just, why am I in a hospital? Why can't I move? Why can't I open my eyes? I was just at work. I mean, a thousand thoughts just poured into my mind. And thankfully, I wasn't alone. It was the middle of the day. My wife was in the room with me. And I'll never forget how calm and strong her voice was. And strong right away, I've been in a car accident. And first question I asked was, was it my fault? I was a cop, I was just at work. I'm like, please tell me I did not get somebody. And uh, she said, no, it wasn't your fault. And then she told me that my car caught on fire. I just remember this incredibly devastating wave of emotion hitting me because it was the only thing in my life that I was scared of. It was the only thing that I prayed as a kid well, I can handle anything. I do not want to be involved in fire. And here's that warning I'm being told it did. And I asked her, you know, well, when was the accident? I mean, it had, it was three hours ago. It was last night. I was knocked unconscious in a car accident. And she told me it was March 26th. And I thought that's really odd to give me a date of when it happened. So I was like, well, what's today? And she said, today is June 12th. I was in a coma for two and a half months. And it truly was the blink of an eye because of the medicine that I was on. And yeah, that's, and that's what really started the, you know, they had, they had pretty much saved my life, but now I'm being woke up and now it's the mental, the emotional and the continued physical work. It was, it was pretty rough. You know, I'm not gonna, not gonna lie for about three weeks. I was just, I was either crying at, at the thought of my children. What are they gonna think of me? This is so unfair, you know? for them. And then I've lost the child that I love. Then there were days that people didn't dare walk into my room and got yelled at and cussed at just because I was angry. And there were days I didn't want to talk. And it went that way for about three weeks. So the end of June, I uh, laid in bed in the middle of the night, uh, no visitors during those hours when you're blind, you're slow with your thoughts. And I had two very profound realizations. Uh, the first one centered around the taxi driver. Uh, it was learned that he had caused four other accidents prior to mine. He lied on his MVD applications. He wasn't taking his medication. There was a whole lot to this not being an accident. He was arrested. He was charged with aggravated assault and was sitting in jail awaiting trial. But I knew he wasn't out to hurt a police officer. And he certainly wasn't out to hurt Jason. So I didn't have to deal with the anger that a lot of, you know, especially uh, I can only speak from the vantage point of a cop. You know, if somebody points a gun at you and says, you're not going home tonight and starts firing and you survive that, you're going to have a lot more to deal with because somebody targeted you, somebody tried to hurt you. And I think that's where PTSD and some other stuff could really come in. And I was very lucky that I didn't have to deal with the anger. But more importantly, what I realized was, you know, I could walk around and I could say, why I was serving my community, I was minding my business at a traffic light, blind me. But I know that those kind of thoughts and words aren't going to do me any good. They're certainly not going to do my support system any good. I'm the one who chose to be a police officer. I chose to answer up for a call that I had no business answering up for. I chose the direction I traveled on. I chose going back years. I chose to give up a college golf scholarship. I chose, chose to join the military, only spent four years in the military chose to become a cop when I was moved to do so by the death of another officer. I made so many choices, as we all do, 
sometimes hundreds every day that we don't think have any consequences, but we're not free from the consequences of our choices and what ripple effect they might have on our life. So recognizing that I was not in that hospital bed because of some magic, tragic instant moment in time. I was in that hospital because of all choices that I had made going back all the way to high school. And if that's true, which I believe it is, then that means that every choice I make starting right now is going to take me where I need to go. So that kind of laid the foundation for I'm ready to put up a fight. Uh, yeah, I don't know what I can accomplish, but uh, let's give it a try. And again, this is the end of June. So I asked the doctors the next day, I said, when can I go home? You know, I've already been here for three and a half months. And they said, you know, if everything goes right, you're going to be here till Christmas. I mean, about six, one month. So I did everything they wanted me to do, surgery, therapy, you name it. And I walked out of County Hospital on July 31st, six months ahead of their schedule. And it was so personally motivating to be ahead of their schedule. And to be totally honest, I was terrified to leave the hospital. You know, five months of just selfishly laying there thinking about myself or having all these professionals surrounding me. I've got friends and family helping my wife and kids. Really, the whole police department was rallied around them. Well, all of a sudden, I'm at home after five months, and I look, my appearance is just incredibly bad at the time. I just grotesque. I was covered in bandages. I've lost 61 pounds. You know, 6'3", like maybe 120 pounds. I was so frail and sick and uh, lost half my fingers amputation. Just terrible. And to go home to that, you know, my wife gave up her career in orthodontics to stay home and take care of me. I've got a seven-year-old daughter and a son. My son Zane turned three when I was in my home. Well, for him, it was just, you know, I've been gone for five months and all of a sudden I come over looking where I did and he would, he would openly say, you're not my dad. And I mean, we all have our version of rock bottom. For me, certainly, that nothing means more to me than being a father and having your child not be able to acknowledge that you're their dad. It's just devastating. But kids are resilient. Once he got past that, which took a few months, and they realized I was dad, and uh, you know, it made them much for the adversity that they had to go through. Uh, the people that they are today uh, is is just amazing to to have watched them grow and. You know, when I first got home, it was therapy, surgery, almost every day, something. But I kept getting a little bit stronger. Things kept getting a little bit better. And positive momentum is a beautiful thing. You just got to get out of the way and let it go. I got to do some amazing things like carry the electric torch, uh, throw out the first pitch of a baseball game, meet the president. Just all these great things because of the uniform I was wearing, which is very humbling. But it did provide me with a lot of inspiration, some great memories. 18 months after the accident, my wife and I had our third child. And, you know, perspective is an amazing thing. We should all try to find what perspective moves us or keeps us in place. To have this baby, when he came home, I realized, you know, this was not about getting me out of a car. This was not about one or two surgeries. We're talking about an entire life that shouldn't exist. Well, what if Mason grows up and has three or four kids. What if they grow up and have three or four kids? This can now go on and on with no logical end. And it it really helped me 
worry less about myself and worry more about these things that are bigger than me, things I'm responsible for, and just have the gratitude to live life. Two weeks after Mason was born, I got into a truck by myself and I drove back to work. I worked my way up to where I was a homicide detective for three years, which, wow, I mean, it's not for everybody, but to speak for victims, and I know you guys can relate to this because you do it every day. To speak for victims that can't speak for themselves, to work with families that are affected by that kind of violence, it is the most honorable thing you can do. And I I love this job. And it went a long way in my recovery process to be involved in some of these cases that I was. And to, uh, again, just it didn't matter how I looked. It didn't matter, you know, trying to learn to use my hands again, whatever. I was... I was working murder cases. I was with the with my squad. I was I was just loving everything about it. My health was getting better, and uh, then due to my eyesight not being able to qualify with my gun, I learned how to shoot it again. Learned how to load and unload it with these hands, but I couldn't do it in the time that's required. So, five and a half years after the accident in August of 2006, I decided to retire from law enforcement, and it was uh, you know a great decision. Went a long way in my health. And I was able to move on to other things and get to around that today. Prior to going into this interview with Jason, we knew a little bit about his story, but we didn't know all of the details. When he was finished, we sat there a good 30 seconds before we can compose ourselves and find the words to ask questions. His story is so admirable and so inspiring. I just, I can't even, I can't even imagine the uphill battle that he faced to get to where he is today. Now Jason takes his story on the road and travels around as a motivational speaker. So we asked him about that. I absolutely love it. I, I mean, obviously with COVID, things have changed the past year, but it'll come back. Uh, in 2019, I had done 75 trips uh, and speeches all across the country. And I just, I love to get on stage. I love to share my story. And you know, I have a PowerPoint, but I show all the pictures. Some of them are, you know, very graphic between the medical or the accident. And then I show the the uplifting side, or my family's journey. And it's just, uh, it's fun. And, and you talk about being emotional. I, it's, that's always my goal. When I, in one hour, if I can make people laugh and cry, you know what? It's amazing that we are designed to feel those things. And I like to embrace them, even on the days when I'm angry or if I have anxiety or, or whatever. I'll beat myself where I'm at that day, too. And I know what it takes to get out of things. I, you know, I have my little moments that I can go back to or things that I can put into perspective for myself. But I just love to feel and, and to be alive. So to laugh and to cry in the same hour, you're doing something right for the day. And uh, I would never, it would never try to hold it together. I was really curious about Jason's attitude before the accident and if he was one to really be in the moment and feel all of the feels that he just described, or if that was something that came after overcoming so many hurdles. Yeah, I think it, I think it came after with the learning process, even though I'm about to celebrate my 20 year anniversary, which I can't believe it, but also it's an age thing. I, I turned 48 in November. And it's kind of funny. I remember, I remember being in the military, being 19, 20, 21, and thinking, man, people in their late 40s are old. And now I'm, now I'm in my late 40s, and I, I still feel like I did when I was 20. But no, to answer your question, before the accident, I was very introverted. 
uh, believe it or not, kind of, you know, on the quiet, shy side. But also, life had just been way too easy. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, to go 28 years and never have death in your family, who can be that lucky? And everybody to still be married and still, you know, having success. So I, I just don't think I realized what life-changing adversity would be like or how I would react. I mean, I'd love to say, oh, yeah, you know, I knew I could handle it and be strong. There's no way. If you'd have told me beforehand what was going to happen, I, I guarantee I would have said, I, yeah, I can't do that. But the learning process, and it'll continue, I've allowed that to become my favorite thing. Like, what is tomorrow going to bring? And my adversity now is not about being burned 20 years ago. My adversity now is, I mean, my appearance a little bit when I get out and travel, I, I definitely, it's not something I can get away from. Uh, I've had 56 surgeries, get to around that today. And to put that into perspective, I have not had surgery since 2008. But now it's it's still about, you know, my kids. And now we're all kind of dealing with a similar person. We're all somehow affected by COVID. And I had my first up close dealing with it just last week when I, I was supposed to have uh, knee surgery. I tore the meniscus in my knee, slipping on gravel in my front yard. That's when you know you didn't. I was wearing flip-flops and I walked outside and I slipped and tore up my knee. And so anyway, I was supposed to have surgery last Friday. And, you know, of course I'm making jokes. I'm like, this is my first surgery that has nothing to do with the burns. I, I welcome it, no problem. And as part of having surgery, the surgical center required you to get a COVID test. Why? No symptoms, no, like, yeah, no problem. And my wife's a school teacher, so she's uh, vaccinated. And well, my test came back positive. And so then I was like, uh-oh, you know, and, I, and I, I got, my first thought was, am I compromised in any way from what I went through 20 years? So I called my burn doctor. <laughs> like, I called the guy who saved my life and I'm like, hey, uh, I don't know much about this. And he explained to me, you know, no, you're fine. But if anything happens, come see me. And then I ended up uh, two negative tests back to back over the weekend. So I think it was a false positive, but it changed. All of a sudden I'm in quarantine. It affected my my youngest son, who's now 18, his baseball, his whether he could go to school or not. And all of a sudden it was about that adverse that I had to get through. I didn't think about being burned. 20 years ago, I didn't think about what was going on last year? I thought about what's going on today and how do we get through this? And now we're getting past it. And I guess I will wait for the next one. Kinsey and I were introduced to Jason from our friend Darren. And Jason and Darren have a podcast called Badge Boys. We were curious how they met and how Badge Boys came about. Me and Darren did not know each other prior to our show. I was a cop for you know, only seven years. He was a cop for 30 years. And he worked a lot. Um, he worked in sex crimes for a very long time, which is a different building downtown. He was a silent witness sergeant. He did a lot of other cases where as I was in patrol and then I was off for a while with my injury and then I came back to work and I was ended up in homicide. So I think our paths crossed once in a while, but we didn't really know each other. And then we have a guy here uh, named Dave Pratt who owns uh, his own like studio and internet media thing. Well, when I was a kid, Dave Pratt was already a legend in Phoenix, like in the 80s. He was a, a radio disc jockey, a morning guy, back with the, the great 80s music, the, the hair bands, rock and roll, that kind of stuff. And 
he called me one day and said, what do you think about doing a podcast? And I was like, oh, you know, that, that sounds kind of fun. And he said, I was thinking maybe you could co-host it with this guy, Darren Birch. And I was like, who's Darren Birch? So me and Darren talked and right away we had this chemistry. I got lucky because Darren had been doing a radio show for 10 years already. Plus he was the silent witness sergeant. So he knew a lot about just talking into a microphone. And, and so our first couple of podcasts, I just sat there a little uh, nervous and quiet and kind of followed his lead. And now I'm much more exuberant, probably say a lot of things I shouldn't say that I get a little fired up. Like when you guys came on, when you told us Eric's case, if you would have been in studio, I mean, I was damn near breaking stuff. I was so mad at the cops up there and how I felt as a former investigator, all the things that I'm like, this is obvious. These are no brainers. This is what you do for victims and family. I was so just fired up. And Darren was even like, Jason, you need to call. He's my, he's my, my, my calming mechanism because I get so, I get so riled up. But yeah, we've been doing it for two years now. I think, uh, we're at about 105 shows and uh, look forward to tomorrow being back in studio with him. So a lot of fun. As you just heard, Kinsey and I had the opportunity to be on Badge Boys podcast to discuss Eric Hyder's case. It was very apparent when we spoke with both of them that both Darren and Jason are very passionate about their jobs and they picked up the badge and became officers for the right reason. Being a cop is not a 40 hour a week job. It's not a way to get a paycheck and decent medical benefit. It is who you are 24-7. I've not been a sworn police officer in 15 years, and I still feel very much like a Phoenix police officer. I still care about things being done the right way. And when I see cases, you know, like this one, the one, the one you guys did about Eric, it's just, it's sad to me on a lot of levels because it wouldn't have changed the outcome, but it should have been cleared up within days. Very easily. I'd give anything to go back in time and, and have gotten the call to come out, out there and, and deal with that. Um, but then all the way up to, you know, when you see on the news, like what Derek Chauvin did to George Floyd, I mean, but there's a lot of cops either, they're not doing it for the right reasons. When you have the ability to take people's freedoms away, take children away from their families, enter homes and businesses, I mean, that kind of power, it has to come with a certain humility and it has to come with the understanding that being there to help people is not a cliche. And like Eric's mom, she, you know, Eric's gone and it doesn't hurt him nearly as bad as it hurts the ones he left behind. So his mom became the victim. His mom became the one we fight for. And again, that kind of case, and thankfully they're rare, but I, I truly was in my studio listening to you guys, like just kept shaking my head, looking at Darren. Every time you would tell me something, like there's no way that happened. There's no way they dropped the ball like this. It's it, it, yeah, I was very fired up about about that one, and I'm, I'm glad you shared it because hopefully it'll move things along a little bit the more we get the word out. Jason's story is now a book called Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story written by Landon J. Napoleon. We asked Jason to tell us a little bit about his book. Burning Shield, it actually took three authors and eight years to get that book right. <laughs> I was, well, I was never, I never thought I would have a book. I mean, that just, it still makes me laugh. But the guy who wrote it is just Landon Napoleon. He's wrote 14 books before mine. One was turned into a movie. But after doing this one, now he writes a lot of true stories, which he's, he's an amazing writer. He really captured my voice. And he took the time, like when you read it, 
because I didn't know a lot, I was asleep for a lot of the uh, important stuff. He took the time to personally interview every single person. Because even if you take two people, like the fire, right, you could be standing right next to each other. You still see and hear different things. You feel different things. So he interviewed everybody, put the story together. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, my website is burningshield.com. I mean, I'm easy to find on Instagram, Twitter. In the description of this episode, I will have direct links to all of Jason's social medias, as well as links so you can order his book. One thing that I was curious about, as Jason has mentioned, he is married and his wife was there for him through all of this. I wanted to know a little bit about her and how she handled everything. Incredible. I mean, I can't even find the words for it because I still will never know what she went through. Those two and a half months I was in a coma, but the way, what she did for our kids, the way she was a mom, the way she stayed, having no idea. You know, I could have been blind and disabled my whole life. Nobody really knew. And fast forward all these years later, in a room not very far away, teaching her fourth grade class because they're online right now. And you would never know anything took place. Uh, we still have the same hopes and dreams for our kids. We still fight about the same stuff that married people, uh, I mean, marriage is hard, right? It's not easy at all. Men and women are such different creatures. We change as we get older in different ways. And then you throw something like this into it and you very rarely hear people staying together uh, through life-changing adversity. It's, it's very sad to me. You'll hear one of our big tragedies every year. You hear about Phoenixes. We have a lot of child drown, way too many, unfortunately. Uh, you always hear, you know, a year later or a couple years later, the parents end up divorced. It's very difficult to get through life-changing adversity or tragedy. So yeah, I give my wife Susie just an immense amount of credit. She's she's a great mom. She celebrated our fourth anniversary in the hospital with me when I was in a coma, April of 1997. So we will be having our 24th in a couple of months. So, and then uh, I'm very excited to say, uh, I'm so glad we started young. And in July, I will have my first grandchild. My daughter's 27. She got married three years ago, which is another thing. I'm so blessed. I got to walk her down the aisle. You know, I didn't miss that moment. And yeah, she, so she's been married three years and they just found out a little while ago that uh, she's pregnant and I'm so excited. She's, she's finishing up school and doing great. All the kids are doing great. I'm, I'm so blessed. That's why I smile and I'm so damn happy. Jason's story is so incredibly inspiring and he is such a positive and happy person despite all of the adversity that he went through. Kinsey and I have a friend who has gone through a struggle that is a little bit similar to Jason's. So we told him about it and we wanted to hear some things that he would say to her and about the situation. I feel that it's really important to share for everybody to hear because you never know when you might be faced with hurdles that are similar to what Jason has gone through. This is what Jason had to say for our friend. Being a victim is a choice. And I don't know what she went through, but it helps a lot when you don't, uh, you know, I even have a police report that says you're a victim, but I, I decided a long time ago, no, you know, th this happened, sucks, uh, burns are probably the worst injury that you can easily you can suffer, especially as a child. You still have to go to school and you still, kids can be so incredibly mean. Uh, it's just, it's a really tough injury. The key to your grief is you have to be patient. You have to be patient in your grief and in your struggles. And it doesn't have to be okay tomorrow. It doesn't even have to be okay in a year. You just have to make each day a little better if you can. 
for yourself and the person you love. And that's when the momentum starts starts to come. It's just a, it's a tough deal. So I hope she does listen and uh, I send her all the mojo she needs to overcome this. We cannot thank Jason enough for taking the time out of his day to sit down with us and tell his incredible story. We highly encourage you guys to listen to Badge Boys podcast and pick up Jason's book, Burning Shield. Again, I will have all of the links to Jason's social medias as well as his book in the description of this episode. Crimeaholics, also make sure that you are a part of our Facebook group, Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, I will share some of the images that Jason sent to us to share with you guys. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for 365 days of support. Without you guys and your support, Crimeaholics would not still be here one year later. Until next time, be aware and take care.